the shift here where we're taking that power specifically away from women, not giving them the potential, not saying women, do you want to learn this? You have access to this. And do you want to choose to learn something else? But rather women, if you even want to learn this, you're only given a stripped down, like um, very siloed and segmented version of it, I think is intentional and creates this process in which as a woman, you sort of feel like not just that there's a glass ceiling in terms of your learning, but that you're, you don't even trust yourself. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. A few weeks ago, a controversy erupted regarding the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, or JOFA, and its leadership. According to the JTA, Batsheva Marcus, a former president of the organization, was accused of bullying, demeaning comments, and inappropriate sex talk, and those who accused her of this were effectively silenced by JOFA. According to the article by Andrew Lappin, this has vaulted the tensions at JOFA into public view, raising questions about whether a group founded to disrupt oppressive gender dynamics ended up reinforcing them. And this has led many people to ask about not only the future of JOFA, but about Orthodox feminism in general, however that's defined. To that end, I'll be discussing women's roles in Orthodox Judaism over several episodes. This first episode with Dr. Hannah Leibovitz, which was recorded several weeks ago, addresses her experiences as a self-identifying right-wing Orthodox Jew who is also an academic and who critiques the role of women in Orthodox Judaism from the perspective of an insider. She raises numerous questions, including structural issues, the problem of preventing women from being knowledge holders, the commodification of gedolim, and more. We'll get to that soon. First, I'd like to address my podcast last week where I addressed my father's condition after he suffered a pulmonary embolism and cardiac arrest. Thank God he is doing much better now. There's still a long road ahead, but he is now out of the ICU and in a normal room. Hopefully soon he'll be going to rehab where his recovery will, I hope, continue. I'll just read what I wrote on Facebook several days ago. This is a post from my page and also from the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group page. When my sister called me last Monday to say that my dad had collapsed, we were hopeful that he was merely dehydrated. My brother was less convinced. He saw it happen and he knew that it was bad. About an hour later, the family members with my father in the hospital told me that he had suffered a cardiac arrest in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, that the ER nurse practitioner was discussing things like DNR with my mother, and that Eliza, my sister, and I needed to drive the 80 miles to the hospital ASAP. Things had gone from bad to worse, and we were told to expect the worst. Before I left, I told each of my kids what had happened. I minced no words in explaining that the outlook was not good. I told them that the only thing to do was daven and to be there for each other. Even as I asked them to pray, I was thinking about a likely follow-up conversation in the near future. Though while we should always daven and no prayer is pointless, prayer isn't a magic trick where we somehow talk God into doing something against his own will. While he is Shomei Filah, the one who hears prayer, he is never compelled to answer us in the way that we hope. As it says in Brachot, Anyone who lengthens his tefillah and looks into it, which I understand as expects it to be fulfilled, he will come to heartbrokenness. 
Given my father's condition and the apparent likelihood that their prayers would not be answered, I assumed that this conversation would be directly relevant to them within a few days. This is a discussion that I still need to have. The theology remains the same. But I'm very thankful that my father's situation is an example of the opposite. While I don't have the theological arrogance to say that everyone's tefillot worked, so to speak, I can happily say that my father is finally doing much, much better. After being on a respirator for eight days, he is now breathing on his own, speaking, and even sat up today to have breakfast. We are not out of the woods yet, and there's a long road ahead. He still needs our tefillot. But we are also thankful that we've reached a point that even two days ago seemed like a pipe dream. And in the few days since I wrote that post, my father has continued to improve. You may hear from my microphone that I'm still with him in Florida. And on behalf of all of us here, I want to say how deeply grateful we are to everybody who has reached out, who has included my father's name in your tefillot. Thank you so much, and please continue to keep Yisrael ben Yocheved in your tefillot. Hannah Leibovitz is an assistant professor of public affairs at the University of Texas at Arlington. She is a seasoned qualitative researcher and a prolific writer whose work has been featured in both Jewish and non-Jewish media outlets. Her interdisciplinary research focuses on socially sustainable community development with a particular interest in accessibility, just acquisition, and mutual accountability. Her community-based research methods enable her to be deeply engaged in the public sphere, providing expert analysis and commentary, and to generate grassroots research and service projects. Hannah is an observant Jew and lives with her husband and two children in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Hannah Leibovitz, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to speak about what you called in a communication with me, women as knowledge holders, particularly in right-wing Orthodox spaces. Can you explain what that means and what the problem is? Sure. So um, Orthodoxy and specifically right-wing Orthodox spaces um, are very much shaped by systems of halacha. And women often aren't knowledge holders in this sort of rabbinic halachic system because we don't get exposure to this system. We're not trained in it. Um, we're intentionally kept out of it as uh, rabbinic leaders for sure, although we can serve in various communal leadership spaces. But this system of halacha is something that's pretty much a black box for us. And I think that shapes a lot of how gender politics occurs within the community, because that's the sort of formative and foundational system of knowledge. When women don't have access to that knowledge holding, the degree to which we can be knowledge holders, even in our own life experiences, becomes, um, it, it varies significantly. And then it becomes very uh, discretionary, in my view. So you might have individual, let's say, rabbinic leaders who do hold women to be very strong knowledge holders, but structurally, there isn't really a solid place for women. Where do women fit? Uh, when I say even in terms of our own lived experiences, the system of halacha that sets up questions about women's ability to give testimony in their own experiences very much shapes how men think of women. In the right-wing orthodox space, men have what I call secondary exposure to women. So their primary exposure to women is through the text as opposed to through actual relationships with women. So what they believe to be a woman is more like a, what I call a caricature of a woman that's presented to them in the text, as opposed to actually knowing women and then applying their relational knowledge to a textual knowledge, it happens in the opposite direction. They have textual knowledge and then they sort of presume women to fall into these categories that the text has set up for them. Unlike, you know, kind of traditional Jewish communal life, most men today are very versed in this knowledge, in this secondary women knowledge, and not versed in primary knowledge of women. So, you know, previously, 
even though gender segregation is, you know, common in traditional Jewish spaces for centuries, millennia, right? Um, we, there were also various levels of exposure just because of the nature of communal life. Nowadays, we have very gender segregated spaces, very gender segregated socialization spaces. This can happen for decades, right? I mean, a, a man can be 30 something before he really gets to know a woman, even through marriage. And so they have a lot of secondary knowledge of women. They present this knowledge as sort of what a woman is, which is really, like I said, a caricature of a woman. And it very much impacts how the structural right-wing orthodoxy world views women as knowledge holders. There's a lot there, Dr. Leibowitz. Yeah. I want to take it apart <laughs> step by step. No, that's great. As almost a preliminary question after that introduction, would you call yourself an insider or an outsider with regard to this right-wing space? Because obviously one's approach to it does matter where, where you see yourself, if you're talking about this as an outside critic or a critic from within. Certainly. So um, I would absolutely say that I'm an insider and not to kind of, again, see, this is part of the whole, you know, women as knowledge holders. Here I am thinking I should tell you every single thing about my life so that I can prove that I am a knowledge holder in this space. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in a right wing orthodox household. Um, I grew up going to right wing orthodox schools. I went to BJJ for seminary, Beth Jacob Jerusalem for seminary. Um, Turo for college because CERN was too left-wing, right? I, I'm very much an insider in the right-wing Orthodox space. My husband was in Kolel for several years. And certainly uh, we still are in a very right-wing Orthodox space. We send our, we don't send our children to the modern Orthodox school. We send our children to the more right-wing school um, in the city we live in. So I would not say I'm a knowledge holder in modern Orthodoxy as a primary knowledge space. I would say my knowledge space and my kind of communal space is very much in the right-wing world. When you describe women not being knowledge holders and also the secondary knowledge that men have about women being the result or resulting in all sorts of issues... Why is the knowledge withheld? Because on the one hand, you mentioned the idea of halakha. Halakha itself it is the basis for part of this. This is admittedly something which is a matter of dispute, but of course it appears in Masachi Kedush and Masachi Tzota, the question of whether a person should teach his daughter Torah and so on and so forth. Um, we don't have to get into the whole issue now, but it is something with a tradition that goes in both sides. But you also mentioned that in some ways it's intentionally withheld. So I want to know what you mean by both of those. Is it coming from this is simply in the nature of the traditional society, or is it something which you're saying is somewhat insidious and is beyond halacha? So I think there, I think there are both of those aspects, right? So at, when I think of contempt, the contemporary Jewish communal life right now, women do have access to a robust Jewish education. And so that's where we ask, well, what is included in that robust Jewish education and what isn't? And for women, even the most robust version in the right-wing world, so even kind of the most academic Litvish based Yaakov systems, they teach Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Kesuvim, um, what we might call like Yedias Klalios, general kind of Jewish knowledge. Um, there's more in-depth levels of Jewish knowledge and things like Historia, um, contemporary kind of issues related to the Jewish community. And then you have Tvila, Hashkafa, those sort of kind of uh, more, for lack of a better word, fluffy spaces. And, and within Hashkafa, you'll have various learnings, like some people might learn Ramchal if they're, you know, very, very academic spaces that would be sort of fit into the general, how do we live our lives question from a Jewish perspective um, or from the right-wing Orthodox Jewish perspective. But they're never given a real um, experience in Torah Shabal Peh. And so we have to wonder whether that's intentional, which I believe it is, because if we are offering so much and we're specifically not offering other things, right, what is the intent behind that? If we look at the yeshiva boys system, we see that they tend to not emphasize 
things like tefillah, hashkafa, neviim, kesuvim, right? It's it's Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, more or less, along with Musr and you know some other kind of secondary elements. And so we should also ask, why aren't boys learning those things? Which I think is a separate question that I'm not uh, capable of answering. Um, but when we have these systems of education and socialization in our schools, and when they are one of the primary ways that someone identifies as Orthodox, especially as right-wing Orthodox, people who identify as right-wing Orthodox, but send their kids to, let's say, for example, public school or even a modern Orthodox school, their status as insiders is questioned, right? Because they need to be involved in these institutions of socialization. So they're both educational and socialization tools. And we have to ask why are, you know, what's being taught and why that and not something else. And women do not have expo exposure to Torah Shvalpet. And even when they do have exposure to Torah Shvalpet, it's through something like an Ein Yaakov, which is specifically a set of Sfarim that are like limiting in your um, exposure to real Torah Shvalpet and only enhancing your exposure to the things around it, like Medrash and sort of these other conversations that are happening between Rabbanim. That is intentional. And so we have to wonder why. And mostly the answer that you're given as a woman in this community is that it's not appropriate for you to be learning these other things. We don't have a tradition of women learning these other things, even though we certainly don't have a tradition of women's learning at all. Um, that's sort of accepted as having changed dramatically um, through Sarah Schneer and the Basiakov movement and all of that. That's sort of accepted that now women do learn. But what women learn is still very limited. And if you look at the history of the Beis Yaakov movement, which um, several scholars really have, and they've really dug into it, you also see that pretty early on, it was co-opted by male leaders who took a political turn and said, okay, yes, you can have women's education, but we still very much want to limit what that looks like. And there was this movement towards women being educated, but only in spaces that don't encroach uh, like on the men's space, right? We don't want women to think that they can paskin halacha for themselves. We don't want women to believe that they know these tools and these sort of systems. When I was in seminary, we had to do these larger projects on various topics. And we literally had to piece together things because we were not given access to Talmudic resources or to understanding how to unpack Talmudic resources, which is just as important as having the source itself, right? And so I think that there is this built-in effort to keep women reliant on the rabbinic structure led by men. And I don't think it's a secret, but I think what is sort of insidious here is the fact that it's built out of men's decision to hold on to that as opposed to women's decision to give up that potential, right? So there used to be this idea of das yehudis, where women sort of had their ownership over their own set of halachos, like sneas, right? Women would say, we believe this is sneas or this is not sneas. Um, and sometimes it was, you know, das yehudis plus minakamakom, right? There are these layerings of sort of the norms of the Jewish, of Jewish communal life, um, especially when it came to women's issues, right? And so like, for example, das yehudis is what gave us like the seven clean days, um, you know, these sort of things are were, were brought up by women. Nashibzikaniot, right, exactly. Exactly. So women knew their bodies, women, you know, knew their uh, their tzniyas, all of these sorts of things. Um, the shift here where we're taking that power specifically away from women, not giving them the potential, not saying women, do you want to learn this? You have access to this. And do you want to choose to learn something else? But rather women, if you even want to learn this, you're only given a stripped down like um, very siloed and segmented version of it, I think is intentional and 
creates this process in which as a woman, you sort of feel like not just that there's a glass ceiling in terms of your learning, but that you're, you don't even trust yourself. So like when I learn halachos now, and I am, you know, now kind of trying to figure out how this system works, even though I don't, I personally don't like pass confirm myself or anything, but I'm trying to learn more about the halachic system now. And I'm recognizing more and more how I had this over-reliance on men when even I could have looked up something, even within the right-wing world, I could have just looked up a halacha safer myself, right? Not even going through Tarsh Balpeh, but there's this sort of perspective that you don't have a right to do that. And it's repeated over and over and over again. Now, let me ask you about that because when you talk about how it's, or the part that's insidious is the fact that the rabbis are intentionally maybe for good reasons, but intentionally not teaching women certain things. What do you think the reason for that would be? Because a lot of times I hear people say, and I, full disclosure, I'm not part of the right-wing Orthodox world. I'm in the centrist Orthodox world. But at the same time, you hear a lot about people complaining about rabbinic power play and how rabbis want the power. And my experience is that's, that's not really accurate. I don't think that our gedolim care about power. It could be the people around them care about power, but the gedolim themselves, I've never at least from my experience, I can't really see them as people who are just hungering for some sort of power. That's not what I think is going on. At the same time, the structures that you describe sound really accurate. So what would be the reasons, in your opinion, Dr. Leibovitz, that the rabbis or whomever you're speaking of, why is it that they would do this and really want to restrict women's learning? Is it because they don't think that women can do it and they think that women simply have an inferior intellect and therefore they're protecting them from mistakes? Or is it something else? So I think there's a few things here. So first I want to step back because I do agree with you when it comes to like the, you know, power holding, power hungry, sort of like strong man version of Judaism or Jewish communal life rather. I agree with you. I don't, I don't believe that that's really how it works. It's an oversimplification to the point that it's not helpful. Um, It doesn't help us actually understand anything. I do think that there, we do exist in a political economic market. Uh, everyone does. Every community does, right? Especially in like post-industrial society, um, political economic systems are everywhere. We do have in the right-wing Jewish community what I call the commodification of the gadol. There's something called a gadol, which is not even a real person. It's like a commodified version of a thing. Um, and we, we imbibe in that commodification this political economic system. So a gadol might say something that's like, Women should be doing X. And from their perspective, they're just saying, this is how I feel. And this is what I think is right. And this is a good approach for our community. But the system around it that commodifies this gadol, right, and makes it into something that's not even just a person anymore, takes that as like marching orders to create a program where we then have people pay for this thing and that thing, right? And so they take these pieces and elements that are politic- political, through a political economic system, they're very... Um, incentivized to behave this way, right? To take these little tidbits and to turn them into something much bigger than that. You know, we we just lost, um, you know, a great leader, right? Um, Who was very much affiliated with Kupat Ha'ir, even though in reality, he was not the leader of Kupat Ha'ir, right? Like he was commodified through Mm -hmm. this process. Um, And we have a lot of that in, in the women's world because we don't have strong women communal leaders, right? Your perspective as a woman in terms of what's good and what's right still comes from a male rabbinic leader and comes from the men men around them who interpret their words 
who then create programs and systems and things you have to buy and pay and for and sell and just sort of be stuck in this political economic commodifying system because the Gudel said so. Even though that actual person, if you have a one-on-one -on -one with them, you know, would talk to you personally on a personal level about your actual life, right? You wouldn't get this weird disembodied commodified experience, mm -hmm. but it is commodified as it makes its way through the system. I think we see this quite a bit when it comes to knowledge and information, um, like when it comes to the internet, let's say, for example, right? So 15 years ago in the right-wing Orthodox community, internet was, I mean, it still is, but it was huge then talking about the internet. What is the internet? Can you have access to the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Gedolim, you know, actual people who are real leaders in our community basically said, we don't trust this thing. We don't know what it is. It's new. We don't understand it. We would recommend that you be hesitant. But from those words came organizations that you had to pay into and things you had to sign off on and new siloing and, and you know, as opposed to what like the Gudel actually said. So what the Gudel really said might have been something that was like fairly simplistic and not definitely not a strong man, you know, effort at all. But the individuals around them, because the Gudel is commodified and turned into something that's not a person, but like a product. Um, the people around them will then turn that into a production and when it comes to gender politics. And we will have leaders at the top who say, I think that this is the right role of women and this is the right role of men. On the individual level, for thousands of years, people said, okay, there are these sort of things in place and we're all going to make our decisions and try to be the best people we can be into this prescribed mold that the political economic system is setting up for you. Then you are inherently outside of it. And one of those ways that we'd see that in the gender space is when it comes to this knowledge. So as a result, um, I think what ends up happening in the Orthodox world is that women are judged based on women's ability to contribute to the political economic system is judged based on their levels of tznias. So you are at a higher rate of like being valuable, the more tznias that you are. And men's value in the political economic system is determined by their ability to engage in um, Torah Shvalpeh, Torah learning, and to be an expert in Talmudic law and knowledge. And what that creates is a system in which Women are sort of material. And, and when I say it's neosignment, happens in the home, having children, that falls into this entire segment. And so what happens is that women are valued as material producers. We produce actual goods and services and items within our home, as well as biological producers, while men are valued as intellectual producers. And the system of consumption is something like women consume the intellectual product that men create. Men consume the material and biological product that women create. But the two don't sort of meet in an intellectual space. They remain segregated. And the sort of critical and cynical side of me thinks that part of that reason is because there's a concern with women being material, biological, and intellectual producers. That if we give women sort of everything, um, then what will men have, right? And will men be sort of um, no longer masculine or no longer sort of leading their homes in certain kinds of ways or leading the community? So if women can be biological producers, material producers, and knowledge producers, then what are men doing and what service do men have to the community? You know, Maureen Dowd from the New York Times, a columnist there, wrote a book called Are Men Necessary? It sounds like you're saying that same problem might be affecting- Yeah, I absolutely think so. I want to ask you, Dr. Leibovitz, on a personal level, and feel free not to answer this, but I wonder if this is especially frustrating for you. I think of the original motivation for creating the Beis Yaakov system 100 years ago when women were learning outside the home 
They were intellectually growing everywhere except for in Judaism. In some ways, that's you right now, what you're describing. You are an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. You're a researcher. And you're saying at the same time, your knowledge of Torah Shabbat Peh has been limited by the community in which you grow up. Is that something which is very difficult on a personal level too for you? I think it is. I think it's less difficult than people might presume it to be because I'm actually very happy in my roles that I have. When I was younger, I wanted to be a rabbi. I certainly wanted to be a knowledge holder in this way, but it was just not possible. And I'm not, it's not difficult for me to accept limitations. Um, it's difficult for me to accept when those limitations are created by whim and created in order to sustain systems of domination. I don't have a hard time with the fact that structurally within the Orthodox community, I can't be a rabbi. What I struggle with is the role of women and how that is sort of placed in a space that doesn't actually represent the strength of women, especially our intellectual strength, but it's recreated and presented to us like you aren't capable of doing this. That's what bothers me. I would choose just for my own desire. Um, at this point in my life, I would not choose to be a rabbi. Um, I actually think being a communal leader is a terrifying job that I would never want to do. Um, and I'm much, I'm much happier in the space that I am in as a scholar, as an activist, and as an educator. That is the space I would want to be in. And if I had to perform the duties of rabbi, I would not be able to do what I want to do. So I'm very happy with that decision. Um, I'm also very happy being a mommy and having the ability to produce materially and biologically, thank God. Um, so I don't have this sort of feeling that the Orthodox world has placed me in a box that I don't want to be in. I have a broader structural issue with the fact that it's placing womanhood in a box that doesn't accurately represent what women are capable of. And I, and I feel for the women who do want those things, right? I feel deeply for those women and for the fact that they can't have them and are being told essentially, you can't have this because we want to keep this from you and not because we think that you are actually not a, not the best candidate, right? And so my version of this struggle, if I'm being honest, is really more in the expressive, um, artistic expressive space. I can't lead davening and I can't lean. Even though I have a very beautiful voice and laning and leading davening, I think would be very uplifting for people in the community if I had an opportunity to do it. There are men who have terrible voices who can lane and who can lead davening just by the nature of their being men. And so that's where I struggle personally. Um, I have other forms of artistic expression that I would love to have more publicly on display also but that I can't because of my role as women and not as being able to be front and center um, in these artistic ways in the community. I think that many women struggle with that on an, in an intellectual way too, where they feel if I had a chance to learn halakha, if I had a chance to start from the time I was five, I would have been a much better rav than this rav who I now have to ask a question to. And that is a very real struggle and very frustrating when you recognize that it's not just that, oh, Orthodox Judaism isn't a meritocracy. It's also that, are we actually even getting the right leaders? Because if we're keeping an entire segment of the community away from knowledge holding and away from leadership, then we're limiting our pool and who we end up getting will invariably be people who aren't as good. 
Um, and that's a concern for me from as a halachic Jew, right? As a person who observes halacha, I am concerned about the fact that our pool of people who can become halachic thought leaders is so limited. And what are we not actually understanding because of who is the arbiter of this halachic space? You mentioned a lot of different areas where this inequality expresses itself. For example, you speak about leadership, you spoke about laning, you talk about leading the davening, you speak about learning. A lot of L's there, actually. But I wonder if these are all really the same. And I'm curious how you look at them. Because let's say, for example, learning. I mentioned before the Mishnah Masachet Sota, where there's a Nachloket, there's an argument between Ben Azai, Rabbi Lezer, about whether women should be allowed to learn or whether whether a father should teach his daughter Torah. So at least there you can say, okay, in the learning space, you can rely on Ben Azai. There certainly is an opinion that many people hold by that says that they are allowed to. Let's leave that aside. On the other hand, when you talk about leading tefillah, I don't know of any Orthodox rabbi who would, or any Orthodox authority or sefer that would allow a woman to say publicly at the Varshbik and lead the Kedusha, lead the congregation in something like that, no matter how left-wing that authority is, because it's a halachic structure. So I wonder what you think, Dr. Leibovitz, in terms of what these structures or how we should change these structures, should they be changed? Because there's a wide spectrum in there between things that one could say you should be allowed to do, but you're not allowed to do, versus things that you might want to do, but halacha says you can't do them. And I'm wondering how you can draw that line and where you draw that line. So I, I want to actually look at this in the opposite direction for a second, because I think that's where you see um, the disparity here. So a man is not allowed to listen to a woman's voice, right? Kolisha Erva. Men are not allowed to hear women sing, Jewish women sing. And so as a community, what we do is we tell women, because men are not allowed to hear you, you cannot sing, right? But if we look at it in the way that it's actually experienced by men, very often men will opt into listening to women singing. They might go to even Broadway plays. They might opt into this on their own and they might say, maybe it's wrong, but I want to do it anyway. You're listening to the radio or you're going to Broadway shows or you do hear Kol Isha all the time. So let's just be honest and let me lead the tefillah. We don't have the ability to do that, even though we know men at a micro level opt in. At an institutional level, we don't allow women to opt in. Right. But the difference is with leading tefillah is that it's not just a matter of kolisha. And again, I'm not arguing the point. I'm just saying the halachic reality yeah. behind it. Leading the tefillah, at least, let's say, uh, shachrit. I'm not talking about Kabbalah Shabbat. Let, let's talk about a yeah. simple tefillah like shachrit or musaf. The problem is that a davar shibik has to be somebody who's part of the minyan, who counts towards the minyan. It's a different Absolutely. question than kolisha. But, but Kabbalah Shabbat, Sukkot Zimra, like, right, there are all these sections of the tefillah that women could sing and that could very be very beautiful for men. And they could listen to them and their hearts could be drawn towards God in the way that any, you know, Baltvila hopes to do. Certainly there's the halachic categorical status of whether a woman can um, do something because if a man is obligated for it, right, then it has to be a man who is like, who opts in other men. A woman can't opt in other men because she's at a different categorical status, right? So I don't struggle with that. My issue is when we build structures out of these categories without paying attention to the nuances, where can women's voices be heard? And that's the core of the issue. To me, when men struggle on the micro level, we create these, these systems where we say, okay, well, men, where can you sort of do this thing? Where can you find a little bit of flexibility? But we don't do that for women. In fact, we do the opposite. When women struggle, we say, what additional chumrot can we give to her? Because clearly she's struggling to understand this whole concept. When a woman says, let's say, for example, you know, I, I think that covering the bottom half of your leg is really, you know, which it is, 
um, traditionally, right? Wearing socks or things like that has traditionally been past the knee has been a traditional, like what's the minicum of that space? And then what's the minicum of the community? And let's say a woman says, I struggle with wearing seamed tights. She's a Hasidic woman. And I'm fine with wearing a skirt that covers my knees. I still want to be in the community, but I don't want to wear this, this element of the lavush, right? Of the, of the external trapping. What, what her response is in the community is not, okay, let's find a space where you can have something more comfortable or more relaxing. It's, oh dear, you clearly don't understand the whole system here. You need to take on something extra. Your wig is probably too long. You're not spending enough time with your children. Whereas if a man says, the lavush is too difficult for me. I don't want to wear it. I don't want to, you know, it's okay. Well, let's give you a more relaxed version. And you can have more space to do that within the community. Women aren't really given that. Um, and so that's my, my issue is that we aren't, there aren't questions, we aren't questioning where can women fit. We're just saying women don't do this and that's it. And there are a lot of spaces where women can fit. And when you go to communities that are looking through that lens and saying, where can we say yes, not how do we say no, um, you do get a different product and you do have more women involved in communal life, but you also can, it can be very scary right? For a lot of men. Sometimes when we talk about gender politics, we use the terminology of dehumanization, right? That like, you know, women aren't seen as fully part of the community or women aren't seen as fully equal to men. I actually see the opposite. I think that these politics are very much shaped by humanistic qualities. Men are scared of women having power. Men feel uncomfortable in spaces where women are, right? These are human qualities. So I don't think it's a dehumanization. I actually think it's a very human, very emotional, relational system that going back to what I first mentioned, it's very strongly impacted by the fact that men don't have first degree relationships with women. They have only the secondary knowledge of what a caricature of a woman is. So Dr. Leibowitz, if I can be so bold, it sounds like the changes that you would suggest are changes that would make right-wing orthodoxy into centrist orthodoxy or modern orthodoxy. I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not. And trust me, I know that centrist orthodoxy and modern orthodoxy have plenty of problems. I'm not trying to pretend that they don't. But in this space, some of the things you see as problematic in right-wing orthodoxy, I think, at least in some ways, are not as much of a problem in certain sectors of the modern orthodox community. So in that case, once again, with perhaps an overly personal question, why don't you just become a modern orthodox person instead of staying in the right-wing <laughs> space where those problems don't exist? to the same degree? So, yeah. So first of all, I appreciate that question because I think it's one a lot of people have. And so I enjoy the, having the opportunity to answer it. A few things. So the first thing is that we learn in Avos, right, that you're not obligated to finish a task, but you cannot abandon it. I don't feel an obligation to turn right-wing orthodoxy into something that it's not, but I don't feel that I can abandon the women who I know are marginalized within this system because of the nature of how it exists. Um, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't think that, I, I actually feel the opposite. I feel that I have been privileged with comfortably being able to ma manage this space. And it's my obligation to stay here for the women who don't have that. If I were to just sort of leave and move into a modern or centrist space, then I leave those women behind. And I don't think that's ethical or moral or, or honestly, I don't think it's my tough kid, right? I think that it is my tough kid. It is my purpose in life to stay here and to be here and to be this voice for a lot of women here in a way that's deeply relatable to them. The second that I become modern Orthodox, these women won't relate to me anymore, even though I know I might be the same person, but structurally I'm, I'm not. I'm in a different institutional system. I'm not the same as them anymore. So that's the first thing is that I think that I leave the women who I care about and the population I care about behind 
if I personally move to another space. Second is that I do think that one of the hallmarks of right-wing orthodoxy is its treatment of women. And that is a big problem. And it's a big problem because it allows other groups to say, we don't treat our women this way. You all are backwards. You all are oppressive. You all are this, you know, X, Y, Z, because it's so publicly on display, but to never actually engage with what that means in the community. I think we need a lot more texture. I think we need to investigate this further, not to just say, oh, it's a big problem and move out of it, but to actually say, what does this look like? And how does it play out? And what are these women experiencing? And that's what real justice is when women have been have lost their voice, right? The real justice is to give them more voice, not to leave the system and say, well, that's broken and I'm not gonna be involved in that. Um, the last thing is that I don't think that structures are unchangeable. And I think that they're almost always changed primarily by efforts from the outside and efforts from the inside, but by boundary spanners who can bring in both. And I think of myself and my role as a boundary spanner. I think that I can open up this world to the outside in ways that outside communities can say, wow, you all need to change and to push change in that way. And I also think that I open it up on the inside so that people within can push for change too. And this unique role as a boundary spanner, I think is something that I can't, again, I, I can't leave. Um, I have to instead invest more in and, and be really, um, really situate myself on the boundary specifically, even as the boundary moves, to continue to situate myself there so that I can speak to both sides. I have a final question for you, Dr. Leibovitz. You talk about the various structures that can be changed. You believe the structures are able to be changed. So can you mention what structures or how would you like those structures to be changed? Can you give some specific examples of what you'd like to see altered? Sure. Um, first of all, I would like to see more learning of Mishnayis amongst right-wing women. Um, I think that that's sort of the entry-level Torah Shabal Ped text that's very, that's very accessible to women that is somewhat acceptable to learn in the community right now. Um, I think Gemara is a little too much. We're not ready for that. But the Mishnah is a good tool to prepare women to understand how these systems work and to empower them with the knowledge to even ask better questions. I ask better questions to my Rabbanim now because I learned Mishnayas. I know how to ask the question. I know how to explain what I think has happened or, or what the broader issue is because I learned Mishnayas. So I think, first of all, that we should see more women learning Mishnayas. So I think that's the first step, like in terms of just basic textual learning, women should be learning Mishnayas, that should become the norm. Um, we should have girls at 12, having a siyam on a masechta or a few, you know, and that should be their entry into it, absolutely. Um, the other thing that I think that we need to have is more spaces for women where we, we can openly discuss these things and they, they need to be cultivated. As of right now, in broadly in the right-wing Orthodox community, if women get together, it's always with a lens towards material production and consumption. You know, a tablescape for Yontif, or let's talk about shetels or parenting classes, right? It's not intellectual production and consumption. And I think we need to create more spaces where that is the norm for women. More women's Torah classes, more women's, you know, learning and intellectual growth and development, and not through a quote hashkafa lens, not through a watered down fuzzy sort of concept, but actual actual text-based learning. We need to have communities of women who learn, who learn regularly, um, and who who set up these throughout their life cycles, after seminary, after you're married, continuing to learn and to engage in this intellectual production space as women. 
Um, more women speakers who speak on these topics. Don't bring in a man speaker. You don't have to. We have women who are knowledge holders. Find them, bring them out, have them speak to your community. All of that I think is very important. We already have gender segregated spaces. We need to invest in more leadership in those spaces and intellectual knowledge production. Um, so those are kind of, I think, macro and institutional structures, but on a very personal level, I think that we need to change the person to person relationship that women have with other women. On a person-to-person -person level, on a deeply relational level, I think women, when we meet up with other women, should be talking about these things more. When we go to the park, don't talk about shaitals and kids' clothes. Talk about Torah. Talk about Parsha. Talk about something happening in the community. Own that knowledge. Believe that you can. Don't perceive it as the men's space. It's your space. You have something valuable to contribute here. And don't underestimate how much you know and how much insight you have, even if you are in a space that you consider to not be exposed or to not be learning constantly. You do. You went to Beisiaco for 12 years or you, you went to seminary. You know, you have this knowledge. You have it somewhere inside of you. Don't just drop it when you're in these, you know, sort of material and biological producing roles. And as I understand it, there are some other projects you're involved in in order to discuss these ideas as well. I actually am putting together other forms of expression about this topic, but I can't share them yet. But there is something upcoming that people should be excited about in this space that is hopefully coming out by Hanukkah 2022. Um, there will be more information about it in the next month or so. But there is something in this space that's coming out, um, beautiful forms of expression from Orthodox Jewish women about their lives that's, I think, going to be really awesome. Uh, my podcast is actually just for, it's for my regular work. <laughs> it's on intergovernmental <laughs> relations. But there will be some other really cool forms of expression coming soon. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Hannah Leibovitz, this was really enlightening. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.